What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives, and what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Brian Balfour, the founder and CEO of Reforge. Brian is a prolific blogger on the topics of growth and user acquisition. He's had a successful career along the same topic, culminating in his role as the VP of growth at HubSpot. He has grown products to millions of daily active users. He's also a serial founder himself. I believe you started four companies, Brian. Is that right? Yeah, it depends on how you count, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you've raised money from venture capitalists, you've bootstrapped, you've sold companies, you've done it all really. And today you're joining me on the Andy Hackers podcast, so welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I first found you online, I think a couple of years ago, and I was reading your blog, mm-hmm. and you had a post called, Why Product Market Fit is Not Enough. Mm-hmm. And I'd never read anyone who said anything like this before. Product Market Fit is kind of hailed as the, I don't know, the pinnacle of startup success. It's what every company needs if it wants to hit a home run and basically become everything its founders dreamed it could become. And yet you were saying that's not quite enough. Can you share with us your, your opinions there? Why is product market fit not enough for founders to succeed? Yeah, I think just in general in tech, basically what ends up happening is like uh, somebody like creates like a framework or a concept to help like explain a really important topic. And it's um, it's very helpful at first, but then we like we like to do in tech, we just kind of take things to the extreme and start like applying it in just way too many ways and in ways it's not. And so I think it's a super useful concept. Don't get me wrong, but I think there's like two big things that I tend to talk about and think about. And that I've especially felt as like a founder in both a positive and negative way is that one is that product market fit isn't kind of like a moment in time. I see like a lot of founders that I like advise and invest in. I even had a conversation on Twitter today about this. Somebody asking of like, have I reached product market fit? or not yet. And like, like almost like they're like searching for this like bell to go off. Right. And, um, Mm. I wish we had like a product market fit bell that just like rung. So like we all knew that when we had it, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. And, And to be honest in the founder's seat, like I think it very rarely like ever feels that way. And the closest thing I've ever gotten to a description of that feeling is, um, from the CEO of segment, uh, Peter, who described like, this sense of like the market is like pulling the product out of you rather than you kind of pushing the product on the market. I thought that was kind of like the best description I've ever heard of like, just like the qualitative feeling of like when you have it. But I often find like, it almost feels like this like search for like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Right. Or like this lucky leprechaun. And and like, we're actually going to never find that like confidence or that feeling that we ever got it because it's this thing that's always moving, right? Like all these components our product, our market, our, our distribution channels, or like how we monetize our users. These things just are constantly changing and evolving. So even when you find like product market fit on a single feature or product, these things move and things get out of whack. And so you got to move with it. And so you're like always on this constant search for continually evolving and making sure you not only maintain product market fit, but you're searching for new product market fit of new features and new products, right? So like even at HubSpot, a big part of my job is I came in as like, all right, well, like they had this marketing product growing to a hundred million dollars in revenue, but they knew to like continue to maintain growth of that business that they had to find like new products, new verticals. And we restarted the whole product market fit search all over again. 
inside of an organization, which is really hard to do at small and large organizations, but but for different reasons. And so I think people just get caught up in the concept as like, oh, I just got to like find this thing and then I'm done with that and I get to move on to like some other things. And no, it's like you're, you're constantly like working at this and evolving and molding and shaping along the way. So um, I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is like, just because you have, I like to call it market product fit because I tend to think about things first from like, um, like who am I building this thing for first and like what are their problems? And then I can think about the product, which is the solution to those two things. Um, right. I often find when we flip it and we say product market first, we try to think, we think about the solution first and then the audience and the problem. And so, yeah, it's, this is semantics, right? But I actually think language is pretty important. It shapes how, how we think about things. When I think about like market product fit, that's one thing, but there's these other fits that I commonly talk about. The main ones are product channel fit. Even if we get market product fit, meaning like we have clear signals that our product is solving the problems for the audience that we intend to solve them for. And those signals can come from NPS data, word of mouth signals, retention data, all that kind of stuff. We still need to find a way to like actually grow this thing. And just because we have those things does not mean it's going to grow. We're working on things that we can control, right? Like the yeah. product and we get to choose the market. But the one thing we don't get to control is like, what are the scalable channels available to us where our audience is living? Like that's actually determined by somebody else, right? And not only that, but the rules of those channels are also not within our control. A lot of people are can be very frustrated by that, right? Like we do not control what Google does. We do not control what Facebook does. We do not control what the email providers do to their like spam algorithms and, and promotions folders and like all of this stuff. We do not control a damn thing of it. At the end of the day, we have to focus on the things that we can control. And so what we have to do instead is mold our products to fit with one of these channels. Different channels are good, better for different types of products. And so like we have to kind of mold to that. And then so the other one that we talk that I often talk about is channel model fit, which is that one of the things levers we can control is like how much we price our product for, like how do we structure the monetization model around it? What features go in like what package, like all, all that kind of stuff. All of these levers of our monetization model actually create friction for the user deciding whether or not they're going to use and purchase our product. And we can either create a model that's super low friction, so low price point, freemium models, all that kind of stuff. And as a result, we're able to use channels like virality, like paid marketing, some of these lower friction channels, or we can create really high friction, right? High price point, got to pay up front all that kind of stuff. And as a result, we need to use channels that um, have more influence to help people get over that friction. Those are more things like inbound marketing and sales and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the last one is like model market fit. So it's like based on the monetization mechanisms I've set and I look at my market and how many people are in that market. If I just do like simple math, like average revenue per customer times the number of people in my target market times the percentage I think I can capture. How big of a business does that build? And am I building something as big as I want it to be? And a lot of times founders that are kind of on the VC path who need to create $100 million plus revenue businesses, like we walk through that math and the math just doesn't work out. And so you have all of these fits and and the thing is, is like you're constantly searching for them over time. A lot of times one or two come really easy to that business. And then the other ones are the ones that you've got to like really work on and really innovate and put your muscle and your grease behind. But these are all components that you need to think about. 
you know, these things are not easy. Building companies are not easy. These things are systems that where if you like move one lever, all of the other levers move. And so it's this constant like game of like putting all the puzzle pieces together. That's such a perfect way to describe it. It's not like you can just change one part of your business and not worry about the other parts. No. They're all connected. If you choose a particular market, that's going to affect the prices that you're able to yeah. charge. And the prices that you charge are going to affect the distribution channels that you can afford to go after. So like you said, it's like a puzzle where all the pieces have to fit together. And I also love that you mentioned that as founders, we tend to want to work on the things where we have the most competence, the most control, where we're the most comfortable with it. If you're a developer or a designer or something, that's probably going to be the product. You're going to obsess over all the features and the bells and whistles you're going to add. You're going to be imagining people using this cool product that you built, and it's going to seem so real to you. While at the same time, you're neglecting all the other parts of your business that you actually need yeah. to care about in order to make this thing work. I think a lot of I think a lot of people like to talk about like a lot of reasons companies fails because they they like got the product wrong. I actually don't think that's true. I think they probably got one of the other components wrong. So they either built a product for the wrong market or for a market that didn't exist, which actually doesn't mean they got the product wrong. They just got the market wrong. They they chose the market wrong. They didn't define the problem, the customer, or they built a product that didn't fit with any of the distribution channels, or they didn't choose the right monetization model, um, and like the right pricing and all these things. And so it doesn't create compelling like unit economics and, and, and all those components. And so maybe that's a counterintuitive statement. I don't know, but I actually think most of the time I look at, I look at these things and I'm like, you built a really interesting product, but one of these other, one or more of these other things is is off. You didn't fail at building something. You built something, but you just didn't figure out these other components. I think it is counterintuitive. If you look at the population, the demographics really of people who are building these tech-based businesses, these online companies, they're pretty smart people. They're pretty ambitious and driven and talented and motivated and all the good stuff. And yet most companies still fail. I think that should tell you if you're a first-time founder thinking about getting into this that, hey, your intuition is probably not good enough. Otherwise, it would have been good enough for all of these other people. There's probably some stuff that you need to learn and try to understand so you don't make the same mistakes that everybody else makes. I think one thing that I've become more of a believer in is, um, I, I don't know, this rule probably applies in a bunch of places. Look at what everybody else is doing and try to do the exact opposite. And that tends to work out. I mean, just look, like look at Reforge as an example. I think when we started the online professional education space, what everybody was focused on was like the entry-level market, helping people get jobs or like, you know, pricing things low, um, like on Udemy at like 10 bucks a pop or letting anybody kind of like buy the course. And uh, just like all of these components, we did the exact opposite. We were like, you know what? You got to apply for it and we're only going to accept X percent and we're going to slap a super high price on this thing. Actually, we're we're not going to target helping people get jobs. That which is it's a good initiative, but we're only going to target people who have jobs already and like build a different. And so we literally did the exact opposite of what everybody else was doing in the space, and it's worked out super well for us um, so far. I think the reason it just works is like if everybody is like doing one thing or saying something or focused on something, I guarantee you that there is an audience on the other side of that equation that is not being served. Some other things that we did is like a lot of online courses were like, you're going to get amazing results in like X period of time. And we said the exact opposite. We said, we were like, you know what? This shit's going to be super hard. It's going to be super intense. You're probably going to hate us by the end of it. And we're not, we're not guaranteeing you like some like 
crazy outcome like tripling your outcome in two weeks. But we're going to teach you some really meaningful stuff. And if you put the time into it, you're going to meet some really amazing people. And we guarantee you that you'll be able to use these things to create value for you and your company. And so like, we just like, it's just like, say the opposites. And I guarantee you, you'll find an audience that's just like tired of the rest and will immediately attach themselves to what you're doing. So I like looking for the opposites. I think that's a great approach. I've talked to a few people on the podcast who've done something similar. Tobias Van Snyder comes to mind. His episode was called Definitely Not Trying to Fit In with Tobias Van Snyder because he always does the opposite of what everybody else is doing. And it's worked out for him. It's obviously worked out with you for Reforge. I want to talk about how you got to where you are at Reforge, actually. Your story kind of starts a little bit earlier. You said that you were hired to become the VP of growth at HubSpot, and they already had a product that was doing $100 million in revenue when they hired you. How do you get hired for that kind of position? Oh, man, I still kind of question why they ever hired me. But the history of it is that, okay, so I spent my early career, you know, I started this company called Viximo. Some VCs wrote me some massive checks that they should have never written. Uh, I was like 22 at a time. This was like pre-Facebook platform. And we just kind of saw what was going over on in Korea with uh, like virtual goods. And we were like, that's really interesting. That seems like a new business model. We don't know how it's going to develop, but let's like start exploring there. Facebook platform launch, social games became a thing. We ended up building like this alternative social gaming platform, ended up selling it to a company called TapJoy. But that was where I really started to learn growth, like what people now refer to as growth. It was like product-driven growth, a lot of things around virality, a big mix of like quantitative views with like qualitative views of like user psych and all these other components. So that's where I kind of like started this whole growth thing. And many years later, basically HubSpot initially started off, they built like this amazing marketing and sales machine. But one of the things that they felt they wanted to do going forward was start to enable more product-driven growth mechanisms. And that wasn't really a muscle that they had internally. And they had a really interesting opportunity to explore that because they were starting these new products. So rather than experimenting on an existing product and having like the initiatives be constrained, it was like, hey, like here's this blue ocean, this greenfield territory, kind of like do what you want. I had known Darmesh and Mike Volpe and a bunch of the other early team from HubSpot for some time. Mark Roberge, who was like the early salesperson and kind of built the whole sales machine there, was one of the leaders of this new product division. He and I just got to talking he made me an offer twice. I said no twice. And finally, on the third time, uh, he convinced me. I went and it was one of the best decisions I made. It was like myself and maybe like six others when we started in this new products group. And the only things that we had as our goals were, we knew we wanted to develop new products in the sales software vertical and that we wanted to create a new $100 million line of business and that we wanted the primary growth motion to be a product growth motion rather than a sales-first growth motion. That's how I entered HubSpot. And uh, then over the next couple of years, we ended up developing the free HubSpot CRM and what's now known as HubSpot Sales Pro, which I don't know if they publicly announced, but pretty confident is over $100 million as a line of, of business now. I think they did announce that. So um, you can keep that in there. But yeah, it was just crazy growth. It was just crazy growth in like a couple of years, but it didn't come without its... It was really hard. And I've written a lot about this, about like some of the failures that we had to like navigate through to get through success. So even with that giant machine that we had behind us, it was, 
you know, finding these successes and these fits that we're talking about was still a difficult road for sure. I think for most of us, the way that the growth machine works inside a big company like HubSpot is a total black box. So could you give us a story or an example of, of how things worked behind the scenes? Well, it depends what you mean by the growth machine. There's growing the company itself mm-hmm. and like the operating system of the company. There's growing the products. There's multiple. So, so go a little bit deeper. What do you, what do you let's mean talk by about, the growth machine? Let's talk about growing the products because it seems like you came in and it was, it was basically like you're starting almost a miniature startup inside of HubSpot, working on brand new products and trying to grow those. What was that like and how does a mature company like HubSpot approach the problem of trying to grow a product and reach more people? So I think HubSpot did a really great... I did not make these decisions, by the way. There were smarter people like J.D. Sherman and Brian Halligan, the CEO and CEO, that helped set this up. But basically the way that we... The big death of most new products inside companies is that there's a couple of different failure points. At the beginning failure points, they don't give the products enough room to like truly explore from first principles. So they basically assume too many things of like, oh, like, well, we know this, we know this, we know this because we have this other success over here. But a lot of times those successes don't translate to new audiences or new verticals. As a result, they lead you down a road of failure. And so you really have to like wipe the whiteboard clean and start from scratch and rebuild from there. And so what they did was they actually treated it as like venture rounds inside the company. So essentially we took um, multiple product bets. Those multiple products got bets got like quote unquote seed funding. So a year of funding at like a typical seed level, I think the budget was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so it funded a team of X. And at the beginning of the year, we're like looking for these validation points by the end of the year. And then at the end of the year, we would go quote unquote pitch our series A, right? So we would go talk about like what we learned in the validation points. And, and then we would get like the next level of funding and then the series B, right? Like, and they actually funded it that way. And then finally, by the time you get to the series B and you know, this is like a really real thing now hits the second big problem, which is how do you kind of mold this thing back into the giant machine of the company? Right. And that's a whole transition point as well. And that was actually led by somebody different than I did because this was a, about six months into this transition. I ended up leaving to start Reforge, um, but a, a guy named Michael Peachy was responsible for this and did like an amazing job and started to figure out how to transition it back into the machine. And then the third failure point is you got to do it all over again and make sure you don't screw up those first two things. That's how it essentially worked in terms of like how we planted these bets. Now, how the product, the mechanisms behind the products actually grew, it was a different story. So one thing that I commonly talk about is if you're trying to build a like super high growth type of product, um, which I know not everybody is, which is totally fine, but um, these types of products that you know we read about on TechCrunch and all these other places, behind them, um, if you look at how they grow, it's basically a system of uh, what we call compounding growth loops at Reforge. So rather than looking at these things as funnels, these things are actually self-reinforced. So there's some self-reinforcing loop behind the thing that creates this kind of compound interest effect uh, that gives you those exponential curves. The compounding machine behind the marketing product at HubSpot was originally basically what we every forge would refer to as a company-generated, company-distributed content loop. So we would get these leads uh, combined with a sales loop. So we'd get these leads, we generate revenue off of them. That revenue would fund 
the company generating content. We then distributed that content to the search engines uh, like SEO and stuff, as well as our users would distribute that content, which would close the loop and create more like leads and followers, which would give us more revenue. And so through every cycle of the loop, we were able to invest more and more into more content, distribute more content, and it just like continued to compound on itself over time. Now, over time, that loop got even more efficient because rather than the company generating content, we had built such an audience up that we just got what we like, what I refer to as suppliers to generate that content. So it was like guest writers who wanted access to our audience. So we were able to generate a higher volume of content every cycle of loop, which distributed more content, which attracted more leads, right? And like continued to like repeat itself. So that was really the thing behind the HubSpot. Now the new products, they wanted to take a totally different approach. So a product led machine. And so there you, you know, we're thinking about like, user-generated content loops and the different forms of viral loops and everything like that. And so the early HubSpot Sales Pro product, we took a bet on um, one main thing, which uh, I refer to as like a financial viral loop. So it was a freemium product. And as a result, it was designed for an individual, not a group or a company. And it started off super simple. It was like uh, what we called an email tracking product. It sent you notifications when people opened your emails super interesting to salespeople sending contracts all day long. Now, this is standard in a lot of tools, but it wasn't back then. Basically, you got, I think it was like 100 notifications for free. And um, once you hit 100 notifications, you could invite others to get more notifications or you could pay, I think it was like at that time, like 10 bucks a month. And so the, the key here was like, People would hit this notification limit like 13 days into the product, which was kind of a magical time. They had built a habit around the product. They had gotten addicted to these notifications. And so they were super incentivized um, to invite others. You know, we got to hundreds of thousands of users just off of that single loop. Now we evolved that over time into other growth loops, but that's how I think about like growing products is like, how do you build these compounding loops? And then just how do you improve them over time? It's great that you have so many internal frameworks for how growth works. I mean, growth is arguably the most important part of any company. How do you go from zero customers to one customer? How do you go from one customer to the point where your company can pay your salary and beyond? That's all growth. And yet most of the people that I talk to, they don't have this level of knowledge that you have, obviously, or even even a small fraction of it. They have no idea how to organize these different concepts. They hear about something like viral growth or product-driven growth or marketing or SEO. And they don't know how to really structure these things in their mind as how they're related and when to apply one and when to apply the other. You've been both a founder and a VP of growth of the company. What do you think you know, your average founder needs to know and educate themselves about with growth before they start a company? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, look, I think it's actually, it, it is very important to understand these things. And even more so as the company grows, you kind of need a common language of how to talk about these things inside the company, because growth means so many different things to so many different people. And so if you don't actually establish this common language, you just end up talking apples to oranges with each other and you don't eat, and you don't even know it. And this is often really kind of the source of most internal like disagreements or misfires is that people think they're aligned and talking about the same thing, but in reality, they actually aren't. And if you just ask them to like draw a picture of what you mean on a whiteboard, 
you would very quickly realize, oh, you are thinking about this way different than I am. That's why I tend to talk in frameworks because I essentially just think about his frameworks as like, if I'm in a meeting trying to explain something to somebody, can I get up on the whiteboard and draw a picture of this so that we all like understand it and are talking about the same yep. thing? So I, it is important. However, the reason I'm having a conflict internally is like, I keep going back and forth on like, should you really be working on like filling in your weaknesses or just like doubling down on your strengths? And so the reason I talk about it like this is because this is like, obviously my strength. This is what I've spent, you know, years and years on. I used to like code, but if you ask me to code today, like, you know, you're really like, you're, you're about to put yourself through a world of pain if you ask me <laughs> to do that. So, so it's hard. So I would say like, I do some investing on the, on the side um, and advising. And so whenever I do that, the bar I take people through is kind of what we just went through. I'm like, Hey, like I think about growth like this, it's a system of compounding loops. There's these common set of loops I think this is how I would view your product growing. And we like draw a picture up on the whiteboard of like how one step leads to another step. Do you think about it in the same way? And oftentimes, no. And uh, we kind of like collaborate on this. And so the minimum bar that we essentially try to get to is a common picture of how we think the product grows. Not how like money comes in in the system and money comes out of the system, but it's like, how does one user lead to another user. And then once we have that common picture, then we can kind of zoom into that map and say, well, like, how do we like make this thing happen? How do we improve this thing? Right. So if there's like content involved, then we think search engines it, and then we can talk about all the levers and tactics of that little like arrow in the picture. Or if it's like, hey, like I, you know, I'm calm.com, the app, and I'm a subscription product. It's a free trial and I'm driving it through paid ads. Well, okay, that's, that's fine. Like we can now talk about, well, what are the key steps in these loops that are going to be really important to making that work? And so um, actually that's an example where I wasn't involved in the company, but they looked at that and they were like, actually, you know what, to make this work is, uh, we need to do annual subscriptions versus monthly subscriptions so that we collect the money sooner so that we can reinvest it back into ads in order to grow faster. Right? Like these are the types of conversations you can have. And so I think for founders, it's just like they need a picture of like how they think about the product grows and be able to draw that picture. Because if they're able to do that, and they're then able to do a couple things. They're able to like zoom in on what might be the most important part of the picture at any given time or two, they're able to engage with people like me or the many other awesome like growth people out there to have like a very productive conversation about like what the weak spots are and like how to improve. But a lot of times I just get founders that come to me and they literally ask me, well, how do I grow? I'm like, well, shit, like, like that's like the biggest, <laughs> like, I don't know, like at Reforge, we have about, you know, 200 hours of recorded material on that single question. Like, I, like, what, yeah, it's just impossible for me to answer that type of question at that, at that broad. And so in questions like that, it takes like an hour just to peel back the onion of like, well, who's your target audience? What's the problem that you're solving for? Like, how big of a pain point? Is this an individual? Is this a group? What are the alternatives? Like, what are their motivations? Okay, then we can start to think about like the loops and like how all those things um, start to play into account. So I would say like if, if founders, if you're listening and you just want to get to that basic bar of knowledge, 
I would say like we have a couple blog posts on Reforge, one about growth loops and one about a growth system. If you supplement that with some reading from like Casey Winters, who's the chief product officer at Eventbrite, a couple things from Andrew Chen. Um, he's got like uh, what investors look for in growth deck out there on his blog. To be honest, those four you start with those four things and you really internalize those things, you'll be gold. Okay, I'll put some links to those in the show notes because I think it's super helpful to get that background knowledge and be able to draw that diagram you know, on the whiteboard of your mind for how growth works for your company. So like you said, you can talk to other people intelligently about it and also so that you can understand and talk to yourself intelligently about how these things work. At some point, you left HubSpot. Yep. You started the company you're working on now, Reforge. You're doing seven figures in revenue. You mentioned earlier that you're doing the opposite of what everybody else who's doing sort of professional education is doing. And that's worked out for you. I'm curious the story is there. How did you decide to start this type of company? Why did you decide to start this type of company? You've always worked on product companies. Why get into the education business? And also, you know, to make this question even longer, what did the growth loops look like in your mind before you got started? Mm -hmm. So professional education was something that I had been interested in like for a while. Prior to HubSpot, I started, uh, I co-founded a company called Boundless Learning, um, another VC-backed company. We developed a way that took what would take a like college textbook publisher like two years and a couple million dollars to produce. And we got that down to like 30 days and 15 grand of capital and equal to higher quality results. So orders of magnitude. And as a result, we could offer a free alternative to students' college textbooks, which here in the US, you know, cost people, you know, two to three grand a year, right? So huge pain point um, for college students. You know, that was a case where, you know, we took a bet on that company. We had three huge hypotheses. One, that we could develop a system that created 10x or more efficiencies, which we proved out. Two, that we can market this directly to end students because like that wasn't a, like, a proven thing at the time. We proved that out, actually. We got to like millions of users. And then three, we could build a product that they would engage with on a recurring basis and pay for. We fell short there A number three. Part of it was... The textbook publishers got pretty freaked out by us and the three biggest ones here in the U.S. banded together and sued us, which is like oh, wow. a podcast for another time. Uh, but, like, <laughs> uh, but that was like a wild ride. But during that, I started thinking about professional education because it was something that that I was doing that was like really close to me. It was like um, a different audience than we, what we were targeting at Boundless Learning. But I didn't pull the trigger on it at the time. And so it was just kind of like ruminating in my head for a while. And I went to HubSpot. Our team grew really fast. And I would just eventually sit in these one-on-ones every week. Somebody would ask me about professional development. I'd spend hours researching what to recommend them. Nine times out of 10, I would come up empty-handed. And that made me feel like a terrible manager. It was a terrible experience for them. And so I decided I was going to create this like course on the side. Andrew Chen, who was at entering growth at Uber at the time, was going to do something similar. So we were like, hey, like, why don't we do this together? Twice the distribution, half the work. You know, this was like the MVP of MVPs. Like when people talk about you should be embarrassed of your, your first version of the product, I am incredibly embarrassed of that first version. I still see and meet people who were part of that first course and I just profusely apologize. Uh, like how, but, but the thing was, <laughs> so we had like thousands of applications. We slapped a high price point on it. We generated some good revenue and um, NPS and the feedback after that was pretty good for what it was. It was like NPS was like 30. And for the for the crappiness of this thing, like that to me was like 90 NPS. Like I was like, holy crap. So, you know, that combined with some other things that were going on um, at HubSpot at the time, it just made it the right time 
if I was going to leave and do something, it was either that or stay at HubSpot for another couple of years. And I just, um, it was a really hard decision because I was, I learned so much at, so much at HubSpot, um, during my time there. But I ultimately just decided to pull the trigger and leave and take a bet. Why do you think thousands of people were applying to this course that you're teaching? What got everybody so excited? Because that's a pretty unusual response to, as you said, you know, the smallest of the small MVPs. Yeah. I, it was just part of just, um, it was kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, which was, uh, so I had experienced the problem as a manager. And so it was kind of like, well, why can't I find anything out there that I feel that I can recommend to my employees and have it be a good use of their time? We just started creating a list of those things and started creating a list of like what was out there. And then we just did the exact opposite. Rather than it being like a short course, we did a long course. Rather than it being about tactics, we actually did it about like strategy and frameworks. Rather than it coming from like an author of a book, it was like Andrew and I who were operators at the time. And rather than being low price, it was high price. Rather than accepting everybody, we made everybody apply. Like we did all of these things. And as a result, right, there was an untapped audience out there that was tired of what everybody else was chasing and it just stuck out to them. It was like differentiated and they were, and they responded to it. But I think the more that I've gotten into Reforge, you know, I took the leap on Reforge. I had no idea whether or not it was going to be a big company. I, like that wasn't a thing that I was confident in at the beginning. I, I now believe in that after working on it for a few years and proving out a bunch of hypotheses, but it's not like the need for professional education has decreased. It's only increased. But it's just that along with that, like how people want it has totally changed. Like they don't really want it from tenured professors. They want it from operators. They don't want to take two years off and go do it. They want to do it alongside their careers. They don't want it to be general and surface level. They want it to be something that they can apply like right away. There's just like all of these different factors about it. And so this isn't new news, but like, MBAs and master's degrees in general are in massive trouble. Um, a bunch of them have been shutting down because they've been basically, you know, in the red for many years for schools. There's very few schools that are even coming close to like keeping up with the times, not only on topics, but who's teaching them and the formats that they're offering in them. It's just, that's a slow moving world. And so, you know, the speed is our benefit at the moment. Earlier when you were talking about why product market fit is not enough. You brought up a bunch of different fits. And having read your material on this, you've got like four different quadrants. You've got market, product, your distribution channels, and your monetization models that all sort of go into how your business grows. And I kind of want to analyze Reforge on the basis of Mm. this this four fits framework. So I'll do my best. You tell me where I go wrong. Okay. The market here is this milieu of all these people who don't want to get their education from master's degrees. They want it from operators. They feel that they can grow in their careers, make more money, become more successful. That's sort of the problem you're solving that this market has. And the business model, as you you pointed out, is that people pay directly for the courses and they're willing to pay quite a lot of money for it. The product is one of these areas where you've taken a look at your market and what their needs are and just sort of matched it to fit directly what they want, which in many cases involve doing the opposite of what other products are doing. And that's why you've got all sorts of different courses that people can take you know, while they're at their careers rather than having to take several years off, et cetera. Those aren't decisions you made in a black box. Those are decisions that you made because 
They flowed backwards from you knowing who your market was and what their needs are. And then I think the big question mark for me is the channels, the distribution mm-hmm. channels. How do people find out mm-hmm. about Reforge? Mm-hmm. How did you get it in their hands in the beginning and how has that changed over time? Yeah, uh, let me restate these real quick. So okay. the way that I think about the market is that we target mid-career professionals. So these are people that are at least a few years into their career, but not 10-year-old execs yet. The problem that we solve for that market is that I need to get up to speed from the best on this topic really quickly. Uh, So oftentimes you're like a PM at Facebook and you get thrown onto a new project. You've never worked on that thing before. And you just like, you need to start by standing on the shoulders of giants. The product is, um, we can describe it, but we actually describe the product as like, we pursue three principles and we can bring that to life in any way. But um, we talk a lot about credibility so that it's coming from like actual practitioners and, and people that our audience identifies. We talk about relevance, meaning that it like uh, it's relevant enough to you that you can take action on what you learn almost immediately. And we talk about depth so that we go deeper than anybody else out there on the mm-hmm. topics that we choose. So those are the three principles. The model is a transactional model. We charge 3,500 bucks or 3,000 for team per person for teams of three plus. And the channel. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, as I mentioned earlier with these four fits is like, it's you never nail these four things out of the gate. They are always things that evolve and you work on over time. You typically start strong in one or two areas and then out of the others. And I would say this is definitely our weakest area. Andrew and I, we've been blogging for like 12 years now or something like that. So we had these email lists that had built up over time those lists have just like kind of continued to grow on their own. And to be honest, like those email lists and a very basic content presence has um, gotten us to where we are today, which is fine because like, once again, you have limited time, you have limited resources, so you have to prioritize. So for us, we looked at this and we were like, okay, well, what are, with our limited time and availability, which ones should we focus on? Well, why would we focus on channel when we have enough there to get us to a certain point. Let's figure out these other pieces first. But we are actually getting to a point where our growth is kind of hitting the ceiling of like what we have and what is available to us. And so you will likely see some new things from us in the coming year that fundamentally change the channel and um, the structure of our model, actually. So both those things. So like I said, always moving. Yeah, it's really cool to see how you've been so successful despite the fact that you say, you know, your channels are your weakest point. And I think a lot of that comes down to the other parts of your model. They all fit together. And the fact that, for example, with monetization, you're able to charge customers 3000 3500 bucks ahead. Well, if you can charge that much for what you're selling, you don't need 10 million users to, to make a profit, right? You can have a few hundred people and you're already making you know, enough to support a small team. I think this is something that a lot of fledgling founders don't understand. They start right out of the gate saying, you know, what can I build? What can I create that I can sell for $5 a month or $10 a month or something extremely low, not realizing that that automatically means that they have to hit it out of the park with their distribution channel. They have to have some sort of massive distribution if they ever want to turn a profit with that. What made you so confident that you could charge that much coming out of the gate? I wasn't confident at all. Andrew was the one that like uh, pushed this actually initially. I'm glad he did because exactly what you're talking about is even if you know this principle, you will still likely underprice your product. It's just like a natural human 
bias uh, is like we have like lack of confidence almost like in our own own thing. So we didn't have that. We, we didn't know at first. And I would say like we actually have never revisited pricing. So we haven't changed pricing in four years, which is actually a huge problem, which I actually just wrote a blog post on. And so and we know we're way underpriced just based on like the volume of applications and our NPS is like typically above 70 and like the mid 70s. But that's okay for us right now because we're we're optimizing for other things with like the limited resources that we have. But you're right. Like I I would be lying to you if I said that I had the confidence. I personally had the confidence in that. That actually came from Andrew pushing a little bit. We even thought about like prices that were like double that at some point. But yeah, we just wanted to validate other things. But by default, I would kind of go down the line that what you're saying is like either start by charging way more for than, than you're initially thinking, or you just need to pursue a problem that command, like justifies like a higher price point. And you can create like a compelling business off of that. But once again, these things are all systems. So really depends on like all of the other components. Like if you think about our market, mid-career professionals, in tech companies of companies post product market fit that are interested in you know the product growth vertical you're talking about like in the grand scheme of things a pretty a pretty niche audience and so in order to create like a profitable compelling growing business like that you know small audience equals um that you need to charge some higher dollars for um to do that so it's hard to give general advice on one of these components without talking about all of the other components at the same time you have a, a niche audience, but they're very well positioned in terms of being a lucrative audience. They're people who make a lot of money and who see even more money in their future if they can leverage an educational platform to help them learn and become better at their careers. Like you said, these are people in the middle of their careers working at tech companies. <laughs> they're pretty well paid. Yeah. And I think that supports you being able to charge a high price point. And you also said something that I would really love to deep dive on, which is half of the equation for raising your prices as a founder is having that confidence or just taking a leap of faith. But the other half is maybe just solving a problem that people already have proven is valuable enough for them to pay a lot for. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if you're building like a, a, a task management application, people are paying five bucks a month for it. It's going to be pretty hard for you to raise prices. But if you're building something in, for example, the education space, well, you already know people pay forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year to go to college. People value education to an extreme degree. Just by making the decision to be in that market, you're sort of giving yourself a huge boost in terms of how much you can charge. This is one of the reasons why I tell a lot of indie hackers that one of the best businesses you can start is an education business. I've had a ton of founders on the podcast in the past who've had some sort of business where they're teaching people. I've had Wes Boss who teaches developers to learn how to code. And he just makes his own websites and puts up courses and people pay hundreds of dollars a pop to learn how to code because it's valuable for them. They understand how it's going to make them more money in their career. Yeah. But uh, let me push back on that a little bit, right? Because like, I'll play devil's advocate for a second. Like our true competition or true alternative is the huge wide web of just like generally free content that in a lot of cases is pretty good, like this podcast, right? And that alternative is pretty compelling. And we do something that most that no other education company does, which is we do not sell certificates. I'm morally opposed to certification. I think it's bullshit. It's a false destination. That is not the end. I would rather have you 
take one thing, apply it, and create value, then memorize all of the frameworks in our course and pass like some quiz for a certificate. Like so most other education companies justify their price points by like some signaling factor. We do not do that. The alternatives, there are alternatives out there. Um, they are free, but it pushes us to create something for a specific audience that wants like a different environment, a different audience, a different outcome than that. And that's why it's so important to get as detailed as possible as you can with like the market and like the problem that um, you're actually solving. I know that's like super common generic advice that probably everybody on this podcast like gives, but I don't actually think most people know what it looks like to like really know the audience and really know the problem and have it written down in a structured way and evangelized within your company to a point that everybody can repeat it like, you know, on prompt. So I don't know. It's, you know, pricing is a tricky thing. There's some like good mechanisms and stuff out there as well. If you want to like gather some information and data around, um, I would just search like there's this great company, ProfitWell, that talks about how to measure value metrics and do max differentiation surveys and stuff like that. They have some excellent content Patrick on this. And a uh, yeah. guest on the podcast. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of good information from him about monetization and not only how it can help you make more revenue, but how it can also help you grow faster and reach more customers, which is fascinating because most people don't associate how you charge with how fast your company is growing. Yeah, that's right. So you said, you know, on the topic of acquisition that the times are actually changing. And that user acquisition is actually harder today than it was in the past. It's getting more expensive. Why don't you educate us a bit on why that is and what founders can do about it? We initially went through a wave where like new, big, scalable channels were emerging at a pretty consistent pace. I'm talking about the days where like Facebook emerged and Instagram and Snapchat. And, I'm sorry, I forgot about Google and like like all these different channels. But you know that's done, uh, at least for the time being. And the reason that's an issue is because if you, if you flip it, every time a new one emerges, it creates a new opportunity, like a new wave of people who are willing to try these things out early. They really get like a lot of benefit from it. But getting to that type of scale um, on a consumer basis is so hard now just due to the network effects of all of these companies and their their extreme willingness to like squash it others at any moment through acquisitions or other mechanisms and so that just means like everybody's kind of competing in the same territory. On top of that, you've just got like the macro trends of like most US people are online at this point. So you don't have like, you know, the tide is rising. So these channels kind of aren't growing their pool of people naturally that way either. On top of that, I think in the past three to five years, even though we haven't had a ton of new channels emerge, there's been a lot of like innovation in um, the use of data for different types of targeting algorithms, lookalikes, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, obviously, the big privacy push, um, new regulation feels like I don't think we've really felt it yet, but it's going to feels like, you know, those um, what I call data tailwinds, which helps like make acquisition more efficient and more effective, start to feel like they might be turning into headwinds. So I think just like all of these dynamics at once make the whole game tougher. What to do about it is like a really hard question because it depends on your company. Uh, but I think the good thing for this audience is that the people that I see winning are the ones who are leveraging like technology and data a lot more. So there's this awesome guy. If you haven't had him on the podcast yet, you should have him. 
Um, his name is uh, G. Cabane um, or Guillaume Cabane. He was uh, VP of growth at uh, Segment and then Drift. He's like one of the most creative, technical marketers I have ever met in my entire life. And the types of things that, you know, campaigns and things that he puts together is like just absolutely brilliant and amazing. But he does all of these things where he finds like unique sources of data, pulls it in, is able to like personalize, automate things like off of this, these like unique sets of, of data in ways that I haven't seen others. You also see like the people who are doing the best at paid acquisition right now are not actually performance marketers. They're typically a team of two to three engineers with like a PM that uh, has a little bit of background. Um, so companies like Wish that I've spent, I think, tens of millions on Facebook ads, even like people like Pinterest at this point, and Airbnb is actually another good one. These teams are um, technical teams. And that's because the way to win in these channels is not through anything like manual. It's all through kind of like the use of data, mass personalization, like finding technical holes in the algorithms, like all of that kind of stuff. So where it goes from here, you know, I don't know. The obvious thing is like in the B2B space, you see all those companies move from like sales and marketing channels to more product-driven, like viral, like kind of viral products spreading. Um, but that even feels kind of like saturated at this point point. It's like so many invites for so many different products, right? So it's hard to predict where these things going. And that's not really what I spend my personal time on. I spend my personal time on like understanding the underlying principles and frameworks. So, you know, that others that are kind of working on these problems can use them to like uncover, uncover new solutions. Um, and so that's kind of like what we teach at Reforge. And um, yeah, so it's not something you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a fortune teller, unfortunately. So, but you know, yeah, get people like G on this podcast and uh, yeah, he's a wealth of knowledge. Well, you've been a wealth of knowledge yourself, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I regret not being able to ask you like these other <laughs> 35 questions I have, but no, can I just say yeah, one more thing? Totally. Yeah. Cause I know a lot of people on this are starting companies. This shit is hard, super hard. I don't think we talk enough about how hard it is we can sit up here and we can talk about like how like all the successes and all that kind of stuff. So if you're sitting there and you're like, feel, if you feel the struggle, um, I'm just like, just embrace the struggle because it's hard for everybody. Everybody. Believe me. I like wake up half my mornings and I question why the hell I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, cause there are so many other easy ways. So look, like I just don't want people to feel alone uh, out there and feel like everybody else has it easy. It's hard for everybody. And so, you know, embrace the hard stuff and that's what gets you returns. I'll throw my hat into that ring as well. I'm right there with you. It's not easy. Yeah. But you're also not alone. You've got tens of thousands of other people doing this as well. That's the entire point of this podcast. The entire point of Andy Hackers is to show that you're not alone and there's other people you can talk to. Brian Balfour, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your story and your advice with us. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to online, your writings about how to grow and your company, Reforge? Yeah, main places are, um, I have a blog, brianbelfour.com. And then, um, yeah, just go to reforge.com, you know, sign up for the blog there as well. So that those are the best places. We don't send a lot of emails. Um, so we focus more on quality over quantity. So don't be afraid, like we're going to spam you or anything. Um, those are the main places. I'm kind of on like a social media diet. So, uh, but I'm also occasionally on Twitter um, at bbelfour. Um, any of those places work. All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for having me. 
Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, you should subscribe to the Indie Hackers Podcast newsletter. Every time I release a new episode, I try to send an email with my thoughts, my takeaways, and my advice for people who listened. You can find that at ndhackers.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>